Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to throwing and sprint coach at Athletisme Mets Metropole, PJ Vazell. Thanks for tuning in to episode 298 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode is a little bit different with PJ. So one thing that is a big passion of PJ's is the history of sport and the history of sprinting and track and field. So PJ was a chronicler for the World Championships and the Olympics. So he knows a lot about the history of track and field. But he's also a coach and is currently coaching the silver medalist from the world cha- latest World Championships in the Hammer. So clearly has got a passion for coaching, but also a passion for history. So we combine the two in this episode and have a little chat around what we can actually learn from past coaches, from history, and whether our methods today are actually a different or too di- dissimilar to what they were 20, 50, 100 years ago when we're actually trying to get people fast. So a really interesting chat with PJ. So like I say, slightly different, but a really, really interesting other perspective on how we go about doing things with our athletes. So let me know what you think this episode. Uh, for me, it was super, super interesting because I'm well into my history, really enjoy history. And clearly, obviously, I'm a big sports fan as well. So for me, it was great, but I would love your feedback. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with PJ Vazell. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. This evening, I am delighted to welcome PJ Vazell. So welcome to the podcast, PJ. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm really always so impressed when people speak a second language and do interviews like this in second languages, which is part of the reason I'm trying to learn French once a week and trying to upskill in that area. But thank you for coming on and speaking not in French and English. I have so much respect for that. So thank you very much. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, PJ, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, a background on you, what you've done before, education-wise, and what you're currently doing now? So I, I was an um, art student, and during my art studies, I began uh, being a uh, chronicler for the International Federation of Athletics. It was in 2004, and the same year I began coaching as well. So I had a background already of, about uh, a lot of research on sports science and sports statistics, um, really in a historical perspective and uh, data analysis from a data uh, historical perspective. And that's how I came into coaching with this uh, study uh, in my bag and no experience at all. So I was fortunate to have a lot of mentors through the years um, who helped me and, and guide me and uh, told me what not to do rather than what to do. So um, I started coaching sprinters from Nigeria, from Greece, from France, finally, and also from Senegal and uh, Switzerland later. And, um, um, I've been participating to all world champs and Olympics since 2004 and five, and I began uh, coaching a thrower in 2015. And um, so I'm less involved in sprinting now, more in throwing and still at the world champs and medal level. Um, that's um, a great um, um, last couple of years uh, since I came back to France, uh, working with, uh, with elite thrower because um, um, we have this, we share actually some passion regarding sports history so that's very nice to share share this with my athlete. Where did that love of sports history come from? I really don't know. I think I, I like the search of origins. I think um, it goes beyond sports, but obviously it find it found a um, an interest in sports and. Um, what I like is to find also when I, when I began coaching, uh, I had some ideas, but I was not sure how to implement them. So I was searching what was done before, not to replicate the, the mistakes and to go faster. Um, so I wanted to know how the, the weights were evolving through the decades, even centuries, weight training or resistance training, assisted training the history of techniques, of, of course, of rules and regulations, all those things are my, my passion when I'm not on the track. I spend a lot of time doing researches on libraries and videos and exchanging stuff with uh, uh, nerds like me. 
<laughs> so when you when you say did you say chronicler a chronicler yeah. of of, um, of of world championships Olympics talk to us a little bit about that because that's that's interesting. Okay, so <laughs> the there was an, a forum on International Federation website at that time, and we were trading information and statistics and uh, uh, results from the past with other uh, forumers. And one day, um, the correspondent for France for IAAF asked me, are you interested to write the story of the retirement of Marie-José Perec, which is the most famous printer in, in France? Uh, it was in 2004. And I said yes, and I pretended I could write in English <laughs> because I was excited to write this story. So I was not speaking at all in English and even less writing. So with the help of a friend, I managed to come up with an article. <laughs> and it was quite well. And actually, incidentally, uh, um, this girl who eventually became a friend, Carol Fuchs, uh, moved to Canada and left my, her place in France. So. I became the French correspondent for IAAF. So I went from meet to meet um, to do reports, interviews, and previews. Um, I met a lot of coaches, athletes, journalists, historians. Um, what I, I spent my time on warm-up area rather than on the, on the stands. I was more interested in the backstage and yeah. Um, so that's how I met my first athlete. He was looking for a coach. He was 19 years old. He was just new on the circuit in 2004. His name was Olusoji Pasuba. And I needed to have uh, his um, a biography and who was his coach. He had no coach and he asked me to find him one. <laughs> so I asked around and nobody was willing to help him. So. Actually, some people told me, coach him, start, go ahead. I was like, I'm, I'm 23, I'm barely older than him, I have no experience. But uh, guys like uh, Dan Paff, for example, was um, very nice with me, uh, telling me, yes, you can. Actually, what just, you know, replying to my question, he was giving me a lot of self-confidence. Um, he... Really, through the years, he was a great resource and great friend and a great inspiration and a great mentor for me. Um, and it worked. Uh, with this athlete, he became uh, world Indian champion. He still has the African record 985 in 2006. It was great year of discovery because he had no coach. I never had athlete, so it clicked very well. We had no um, bad habits. And we were discovering everything. We were eager to learn and to to go to meet from we did the round of the world we were both very young very scared i guess um and he was very motivated because every race he had was a way of living for him and coaching a nigerian like this was not the same i know coaching a french who already has you know his main incomes outside just of running so it was very um, a special school for me to start with athletes who were so motivated 
and uh, we had basically nothing. So I was traveling with him and I was sleeping on the floor and because I didn't have hotel rooms or even ticket meals. And I can tell you that we, we were really motivated. Maybe sometimes I'm like, did I lost my, this motivation I had, <laughs> this fire we had inside. Um, and, but it told, it, it, um, what I learned then is that uh, really you meet some athletes who, are ex- who have extra motivation and <laughs> they are killers on the track. And that's the kind of people you are going to meet. So you have to prepare your athletes for that. So you, at, th- at this point, you'd had no, you'd no formal coaching qualifications? Nope. <laughs> okay. So where did you start? Do you just reach out to the guys that you'd met on the circuit and just ask their advice, where to go, what, what to read, what to... So, you know... Doing research on sports history, you come a huge part and unexplored, unfortunately, is the history of training methods. So I kind of learned by accident this kind of things, the methodology of uh, uh, training, which had no really relevance because I was more looking for results than methodology, but it just I just integrated it. So um, now on the on the um, working with an athlete is completely different, and he was already an elite athlete, very talented one. And um, the most difficult for me was to gauge the volume of training. Um, and basically, what I did is cutting everything in half. <laughs> From what I was seeing in the books, I was oh, no, I kind of feel what he needed. And this is not from the books, it's a connection with the athlete. And another thing, and I needed my mentors to, to teach me that is trust the athlete. Um, now there's a bias because um, probably at, later I choose the athletes or they choose me because we, we had a trust relationship. But I really believe that trusting the athlete, uh, observing him, um, listening to, to what he or she has to say, because they have a lot of experience. They use their body once or twice a day as their, um, as their main tool, as their main work tool. They know much more than anything. They have a, an incredible experience at the highest level. And um, as coaches, we have to listen more to them also as uh, the medical guys need to listen more to, to what they have to say because they have an incredible experience. It's completely different to treat a sportsman or a fit guy than an elite athlete because um, they have years of experience using their body and they know they have a very, very accurate way to explore it and use it. It's fascinating. Do you think that because you'd not come through a traditional path, you were more willing to look at or speak to the athlete and get their opinion, take in what they were saying, rather than a traditional coaching path, which may have made you think that I know best? Um, I don't think so, because I, I think we all start from scratch. From scratch. Uh, 
the, the funny thing with my, my debut was that I was not, I started writing in, in English, but I was still not fluent at all in, in English. So I had not, nothing much to say to them in English. I was just listening to them and not much speaking. And that's better because I think as a young coach, I, I thought I knew a lot. And I think the, if I had started with a French athlete, I would have told them everything I knew, which is really wrong. wrong. <laughs> that's the wrong way to, I think, the wrong approach. So basically I was shutting my mouth and listening to them watching them, and if I needed really something to say, if I had something important to say, I was managing to, to, to tell them, but that was important, so it was not um, lost in all the words, you know? The important thing I had to say was the only thing I was saying. <laughs> so I, I, I kept this method with all my athletes. <laughs> so what what language were you communicating in then English? Were yes. You, were you talking English? Okay. Pigeon English. Pigeon English. Okay. <laughs> yes. Was was you was your athletes English good? Yes, he was uh, he was Nigerian so obviously his uh, mother language was uh, uh, English but they were usually speaking broken English, pigeon English. So I got the African accent when I, st when I started coaching and <laughs> I got some words, some slang words, and I was not really aware of if it was an appropriate language or slang language. But yeah, another thing is that I was young and uh, although I was afraid to ask questions to people, people were not afraid at all for, to, to tell me their secrets. <laughs> So I remember, for example, in 2005, at World Champs, um, my athlete was the only one who was not willing to do weights at all. He didn't believe in weights, but he was the first out of the semifinals. He was the fifth guy. He didn't make the final. So what I did after is I went to every athlete or their coach who made the final and asked, are you doing weights? If yes, what weights are you doing? So they all replied to me. So I went back to my athlete. Look, you're the only one who is not doing weights at all. And you're the only one who's not entering the final. So maybe next year we have to, to change something. And that's what he did. And in 2006, he did very well. 985 and so on. Nice. So let's have a little chat about that, the history of, of sprinting. And maybe, maybe bring it a little bit up to date. So it's quite, you know, maybe not 1900, but in the last like 20, 25 years of how things have changed. Because even from an outsider, someone that grew up watching the Olympics and watched the 100 meter final, the people, the, the athletes and how they looked, which I'm guessing is led by their training method, methods, look a lot different to what they do now. Is there is there similar comparisons when you look at and you've you've analyzed and, and looked into their training methods with how it how it differs to 25 years ago versus now so first thing is that i believe that um um what has changed in nothing much much has changed in the last 20 years compared to the earlier early 20th century or even 
after World War II, where every four years there were huge improvements in methods and in science. In the last 20 years, I mean, it's difficult. Technology, yes, but the concepts have not involved. Evolved, sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. We, you know, some countries uh, during the Cold War, um, especially in the East, um, it was very important to win medals. So it was very important to to reach the the space and to to land on the moon. And you know, they hired the best scientists there to work on these projects. It was basically the same to win medals in sports. So there were meetings, brainstorms with a lot of scientists. And the question we have now as uh, coaches or scientists, they already have the same questions back then. Um, so the difference is that, of course, the technologies, I mean, the high tech is different but uh, they found solutions to answer their, their questions. Some few concepts are not the same. Um, if you look at history, like take the ancient Greece, they weren't very concerned about time because it didn't make sense to compare times um, and to record it, probably because they didn't have a, a proper way to record it electronically, of course. Um, And time became more important when, when we were able to measure it with accuracy in the late 18th century. That's where sprint races started to evolve also because we, we could time it also. Um, and while before there was no time and only place, it changed and it probably influenced a lot of uh, the, the training methods during the 19th and 20th century. That being said, Uh, the concepts regarding how to improve and how to get faster. Um, there was, there's a kind of loop because um, maybe there is a kind of focus on, on high intensity now, not only in sprinting, but also in weight training and um, in team sports. But it's a throwback to what was done in early 20th century when athletes start to, to specialize in certain events. Before they were all around athletes in the 19th century and uh, you could be a hammer thrower and a sprinter in the meantime. Um, and physics were not very really specialized. You can see that also in ancient Greece where you could win um, the, the short sprints, the long sprints, the armor um, race, the Iprotodromos and uh, the long distance race. A guy won all four, uh, Leonidas. But now um, in early 20th century, there was there were a bias towards specialization and um, that you were born either strong or fast or endurance with some psychological features also attributed to those uh, inner um, talents. You were born fast, but you were made uh, endurance guy, a pedestrian. Um, it tells you that um, for sprinting, you just needed to sprint and don't go against your nature. 
And I think there's a kind of things that, like this, uh, we see it now, you should sprint with low volume and high intensity, but that's what they did back then. And um, if we look at the results now and before, you improve very fast in what you are doing because you are mostly doing the same thing, but you reach a plateau very soon and uh, you get tired and you don't improve anymore and you even regress. That's why, um, but I digress already, uh, but um, there are more efficient ways because it was already tested and tried and um, a method went to the opposite direction with a lot of general uh, things. Um, general training was uh, General training, specific training, was coined as early as 13.8, but uh, it, gained, it gained more and more popularity because they could see that they, they could improve in over a longer time, during winter time, and get ready for, for summer competitions. Because if you only sprint fast, you, you're already in, in within a few weeks, really. Uh, that's the concept of... Uh, variability in training, which became very important and very well understood in the 60s. Um, maybe it's kind of forgotten now and we try to get uh, very specific on top speed, on power, find the exact power you need to train. And um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, it comes in, in cycles and a little light training, you, you're training with training cycles and whether you call it blocks or whatever, it looks the same actually. Mm -hmm. So what about the, the introduction of strength training? And that was obviously a big improvement for your athlete when you yes. went round the finalists and realized that everyone else was doing it apart from you or your athlete. What, what impact, obviously there was an obvious impact as you've just said, but in terms of a, I suppose an industry improvement to incorporate weight training and did that did that at one point go not too far because we'll never know where it's too far but did it start to become too important and now it's regressed mm. do, do you find that's the case um so in the 19th century sprinters were doing weights because they were also throwers powerlifters they were doing all, all kind of things and it w was working <laughs> Uh, then with specialization, there was also the idea that you need to be light and doing weights, you get big, so it's wrong. Now, um, you can still find sprinters uh, doing some weights just for conditioning, uh, using dumbbells. You can find it in, in, in books from any age, really. Um, what really changed was... Um, science try to prove scientifically that it's meaningful to lift weights or not so but it was done because um as i said in, in eastern europe everything even politics had to have a scientific justification or so-called scientific justification mm -hmm. but uh, what they did they, you know they they did, a group, they did groups with athletes doing weights, athletes not doing weights, who's improving the most, who gets the most results. 
So it was done in, in uh, 46 with Ter of Anesian. Um, he found that throwers, sprinters, jumpers who add weight to their training have better results in competition in their main event. So that's kind of interesting because uh, it was a landmark study and all the other authors there refer to this, of course, because it was a seminal uh, study. Um, what was interesting and what was lost <laughs> with years he, uh, he, is that he was um, pointing out that, uh, okay, you, you need to do weights, but you, it should not be to the sacrifice of amplitude of movement and relaxation of movement, especially when th with throwers and sprinters, where uh, you can get strong, but you lose amplitude, you lose the feeling of, you, of, the, of what you do. And um, this advice get lost because um, when they started to quantify training in the 50s, they noticed that... Um, the more you train, the better the results, which is true. I mean, it was observation. There's no, you cannot deny it. They increased year after year the training and results also increased. So it was the open door to do more and more and to go into that um, idea that uh, you should also train weight lift as much as possible. Um, there were... Um, experience from the from the field that it was not there was a, a limit to that um, there, it was found in, in sprinters in throwers also unexpectedly because uh, uh, it was of course um, very early understood that sprint uh, throwers need more weight than sprinters because they have an implement and the uh, the loads are on the on the body as uh, Zatierski uh, showed, are um, very important, uh, the constraints on the body uh, during throwing. Um, and um, like the, the hammer throw Olympic champion in 60, there were already Soviet authors and coaches and scientists that were saying he's doing too much weight. But still during 10 years, there was still that, that focus on weight training and more and more and more. But um, far from a unified thing, um, the research was full of uh, contradiction and uh, controversies. And um, you get really fights between scientists, coaches, and um, it's funny to, to, to read the, the articles, uh, the Russian articles back then, because it's really harsh between uh, between them. <laughs> you like like Twitter, like Twitter in two thousand and twenty. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's almost the same because um, and it belonged also to the to the philosophy of uh, of those countries where uh, you improve with dialectics, with contradiction, with the negation of negation, with um, and. Um, that's um, that's how it works. You you, and that's how science works actually, right? If you think of it, um, there are many uh, theorists about science, but one of the main science science um, principle is that uh, scientific knowledge improve in uh, denying what have denying what has done before. I mean, testing it, and you 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 come 
with new paradigms and and every Olympic cycle you got something new from those countries because the the, the competition was fierce and it was not unified at all. It's really contra contradictory with the spirits and philosophy of the, the science back then. So um, if we think about weight training, they soon discovered that there was an optimal amount of weight training, that there was not, a, um, that while it was very important to improve your max strength, you needed to improve your speed as well, especially with throwers and weightlifters. So they started to record the bar speed, to record the jumps in the late 50s, um, as opposed to the max squats recording in, sta in a static way, which is a, can be seen as the expression of uh, maximum strength of, or absolute strength, depending on who you read. And on the other side, you get the jump. And that's what is done now with the apps we, we all have and uh, the new technologies where they were just recording jumps with a, a, a rubber, a, a tape, yes, a tape, and force plates also when they were doing it in the lab in the late 50s. But so all those concepts were the only concept I think which was not really important for them was the concept of max power. Uh, which is really important now. Uh, I don't think it was relevant back then because um, of the variability of training. They found that to improve your strengths or your power, you need to improve your max strengths, your speed strengths. But in between, just to focusing on that max power doesn't make sense because you need variability. And also it clicks with the concept of dialectics because you have a dialectic between strength and speed. On other events, you've got a dialectic between um, strength and endurance or speed and endurance. And the variability of training, meaning that you either sometimes, even within a workout, will work uh, strength and speed and all the variation of it. Um, it worked because they, they tried it. They tried people working with the same implement, for example, in throws with the 7K in shot put, or people using 5K, 8K, 9K, where the people with using a variation of power were more, were, were improving more and getting better results than the people using the exact power, uh, specific power of their events. In throws, it, it's easy. The power, the, uh, the specific power is the power you use at highest intensity with the, the comp competition implement with the 7.K, for example, in hammer throw shot put. Only using it, only using it is less efficient statistically with, uh, with athletes than changing. Why? Because variability, but why variability works is because you are also improving your technique and um, feeling of the of the muscles because uh, they, they, they could find with EMG, with the recording the muscle electric activity, that it's not the same whether you throw with a 6K or 8K, but all those small variations makes you a better skilled, better skilled, better, you improve your technique because it variates your, um, your, 
durability, also changing the, the, the intensity. They found that there's, there's in, um, optimum intensity, that's the best intensity is not 100% or 99%, it's between 90 and 95%, because this way you can, it's optimum in all the principles of training because you can do a high enough volume because volume is important. You don't improve just doing three reps of anything per day. Um, so you do a quite large volume. The, the intensity is high enough to be relevant for your nervous system and to, to be uh, higher, high stress enough for your body. But you don't sacrifice the precision of movement, the amplitude of movement, the constancy of movement, and the speed of movement, and you can train more often. While if you train 100% every time, you're, you're, you're crushing your nervous system, your ability to train uh, in a higher, uh, high enough volume, and also you lose your relaxation, which is more important. And um, when you when you interview athletes of power speed uh, sports who broke world records, most of them will tell you it, it felt easy. It didn't felt like one one hundred percent effort, and they will tell you I can do more. And at training, what um, it brings very inter interesting questions regarding which intensity you should or should you try your max effort every time in your technical events, in sprinting, jumping, throwing, or even lifting? Are you willing to always do your max at training? Is it max load in kg or max velocity in meters per second? Is it wise to always employ a high max voluntary effort? Are you not sacrificing something very, very important that athletes are telling us their best performance in competition, that it didn't feel like max effort. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with PJ. I hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss a little bit more of the industry trends and get a little bit more up to date with what PJ thinks about certain things that are happening in track and field. So commonalities amongst uh, training methods and how that then reflects back to the history of uh, history of, of track and field and methodologies so really interesting part two coming up with pj this episode of the pace of performance podcast is sponsored by athletemonitoring.com the world's most comprehensive versatile and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports so AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations, and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training, and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, athletemonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what athletemonitoring.com can do for you, visit athletemonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at athletemonitor. 
This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They're also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. Just, just bringing it up to the present day, PGA, one of the biggest things I suppose that I've seen over the recent very last 10 years is the, the influence of Franz Bosch and Franz, Franz Bosch's methods that have been integrated within the team sport environment and the, I'm guessing, the track and field environment. Is this, am I putting too much emphasis on that influence? Has, it, has his methods had a big influence? And if so, what are your personal thoughts on on um on his methods so um um uh, franz bosch uh, uh i've attended a presentation of him about a decade ago it was either 2002 or 12 i can't remember exactly uh and i've read uh, parts of his uh book not the latest latest one but uh, the coordination one i think um um, this is not the way I I, um, I enter into my research because I I, I love old stuff and <laughs> so I'd rather spend a lot of time and translating old articles because um, that's my main patient. I'm not a fan of uh, new uh, new things, <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, um, I was, I really did enjoy um, uh, Franz Bosch presentation. It was in UK. I can't remember where it, it was. Um, or oh, Sweden, maybe. Anyway, it pre um, presented. It presented at the UKSCA conference in two thousand and twelve. I think maybe that was it. I don't know. Yes. Uh, it doesn't matter. The thing is that, yes, he presented um, um, many exercises, of course, his philosophy, um, but um, uh, he presented a lot of interesting um, exercises. I think people focus more on the exercises than um, the the philosophy behind them on how to use them or the progression, I think that's a problem because uh, we, and I think it's, it's getting worse because 10 years ago, there was no Instagram or Twitter or stuff. Now you've got athletes asking, I want to do this exercise because it's fancy yeah. and some great athlete is using it and 
The duty of the coach is to explain that this is a great exercise, but you're not there or you've passed this level. It's too easy for you. Usually it's too difficult for you, but you don't say this way, right? You say that there's a progression to do it. Like before doing all those uh, balance stuff and crazy stuff with the bar on one leg and stuff, you need to do it static on one leg. Just try to stay on your on one feet, close the eyes, and stay 20 seconds. I guarantee that most of the of the guys are falling down because they don't have the the, the basics. Uh, this I got from a great athlete, the, one of the greatest sprinters, um, Merlin Arty from Jamaica. Yeah. She's been an yes. elite athlete for three decades, and um, I was asking her uh, about jumping. And she said, well, the first jump I, I, I do, jump exercise I do, is standing on my on one foot, closed eye, and I try to keep my balance. I was like, is it jumping? Yes, because I, I'm preparing my muscles. Because if I don't do it, I know I will get injured later. So it looks easy, but try it. And yes, I, I fell down. Right? So everything has a progression. And the... the the thing is that the, the jump in the, in the train, in the wagon, uh, where Fran, Franz Bosch is in, in terms of exercises, but I think most of it, the, what, he, what he presents is far, more, more, far too much difficult for the, for the athletes, even elite athletes. And many athletes are great compensators. That means that they develop crazy skills that hide great weaknesses. And that those weaknesses you need to address. And sometimes fancy, complicated, and complex exercises are not pointing the, the, the finger on that weak, um, weak um, part of the chain. That's interesting. That first quote, I think it was focusing on the exercise rather than the philosophy behind it. I think that's a really yes. key quote and a, a key message there that like you say, people see it on Instagram, people see it in the book, and that gets translated into a onto onto a program for an athlete who may not be quite there yet and may never get there, but it's different, it looks cool, and that ropes people into wanting to incorporate it rather than understanding the methods behind it and therefore making the decision whether it is appropriate or not. And I think that probably goes for lots of things in life. Now we've got Instagram and Twitter and all this information. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we have to step back. And I think that the duty of coaches to, to, to tell the context of things. Each exercise has a context. If you put it out, and I mean, it, it has some... In, um, sometimes I find... Um, ideas on Instagram about an exercise and but you should propose it to the athlete in a, in a way that he will manage to do it and it, it must have a, a relevance in what has done before and, and where you, you, you intend it to go. But really f hearing that from Merlene that she was using very simple exercises and um, building up more complexity on it was a um, um, it's something I, I, I will never forget. Was Merlin Otty the one with the 
Um, no fingernails. Who was no, that? So there's two with long fingernails. The first one was Florent Griffith Joyner. Yes. Of the World Records. Yes. Yeah. And Gail Givers also later. She's um, uh, one of the two women who won, three women actually, won the, uh, two Olympics at uh, 100 meters. And um, I'm sure they would have similar things to say. I mean, um, um, the few things I know about those athletes is that they, they were very cautious about their body. They had, um, they were very uh, specific into details and um, they also had great coaches. Uh, Bob Kersey, of course, he's been there for decades, <laughs> several decades. So there must be something uh, good about what he, what he has done and uh, the way. And um, it was, I know that Bob Kersey was also a student about uh, Eastern methods as much as the Eastern coaches were students about what was done in US also. So uh, I think it's important uh, to, to interview athletes who had long careers. So Merlin is from Jamaica. Uh, she started running in 74 and she ended her career in 2014. What? So, and yeah, and her international career runs from 79 to 2012, international career. Wow. So she has, she knows much more about sprinting and <laughs> muscle fibers or whatever from anyone else. And uh, uh, that's the kind of people I was uh, watching on TV when I was a kid and uh, had the immense chance of uh, bumping into her in the stadium, I was like, it's Merlin, <laughs> let's <laughs> try to approach her and ask her a question. And uh, since I was coaching a former rival of her, Christine Aron, she, she told me, oh, you, you're Christine Aron's coach. And she become, she asked me questions. I was like, no, no, don't ask me questions. I want, I want to ask you questions because I have lots to, to learn from you. And um, was, she, was she the lady with the, does she have white hair? So Christine, yes, that's the one. Yes, she's, uh, yes. Record at one hundred meter, yeah. And yes. Merlin, is, uh, she's been winning medals at every champs, every Olympics, and would never win the gold medal. And she finally did it in '93, and everybody was happy for her. There was a five-minute standing ovation of the crowds when she placed second at the one one hundred meters. She lost by one thousand of a second. The World Stadium was. And the uh, Gail Divers and Gwen Turns according her and was um, she's a le legend and um, she's so I was so afraid to, to go to speak to her and actually found a woman that was willing to share and she, I, I learned a lot from her um, and she will always go to the basics. Um, I, I just want to jump jump in there, PJ. One thing that you have written a little bit about, which is why I've added it onto the list of things that we were going to chat about, was the polarization of intensity. Yes. Can you explain that and okay. how it that, explain that concept and how it might be applied? So it goes from the focus on high intensity that was uh, going on in the early. 20th century with the first Olympic champions at 100 meters, they were all training in sprinting. Now, 
they, they, they found out that they couldn't sprint every day, that they needed to rest, but they didn't want to rest, so they, they did the opposite thing of running fast. They did some jogs, some checkups, and some jogging. And um, you can find um, the program of Aki Han, who was an Olympic champion in the, in the first Olympics in the early 20th century. What he did was doing sprints, then 50% uh, running, jogging, then next day sprint. So you've, you've got a polarization of training because he didn't want to sprint every day. It didn't make sense. And uh, for him, he found that it was more efficient to do that because he could, uh, at the end, sprint more than just sprinting every day and get injured and tired. So he could recover this way. Um, this kind of thing, of, of course, was interesting in the philosophy of Eastern Bloc because it's, it's di dialectic. <laughs> and then uh, uh, you have to think that those authors were not really published in the uh, Western world where most of our culture is uh, from newspaper and uh, um, sports science newspaper, which were not really science as we understand now, because sports science now is found on peer-to-peer um, uh, -peer review journals or Twitter. Of <laughs> <laughs> course. <laughs> but uh, before, the, all the tra training science, coaching science was on journals uh, from the federations, athletics federations mostly, or just coaching journals, but uh, or um, highly secret research, which we have access now, but we, nobody had access before. Of course, it was secret state. Um, one, one coach who worked a lot on polarization in high-intensity training, um, I mean, power speed training was Charlie Francis in the 80s. Mm. I was going to mention um, that, yeah. He evolved from uh, volume-based training uh, inspired from Poland to polarized training because he was listening to his athletes and was listening to his main athletes in, from 84 and 85, which was Ben Johnson. And he could see that Ben Johnson was... Uh, was better when he was sprinting high intensity, but he couldn't do it two days in a row and he did it 40, hour, 40 hours recovery in between. And that he got it observing this athlete, this elite athlete, and also reading books by um, Romanian Tudor Bompa. Uh, I thought I would forget his name. He was published it in early 80s in his books that you need 48 hours to recover your nervous system from high intensity. So that's how we came up with uh, this method. Um, now, um, it, it had also, you can find it also in, in distance running. Pavo Nurmi was using uh, sl uh, long, sl slow stuff, but also sprints at the end of workouts to get uh, to get a kind of balance, right? Um, and they knew that, I mean, quarter milers, middle distance runners 
knew that it's very exhausting to work in that middle part, um, what we call lactic workouts. Um, we no longer call it lactic because uh, we have a, a different uh, interpretation of what's going on now on the body regarding uh, bioenergetics. But the middle parts in between being slow and being very fast, this middle part where you've got a lot of lactic acid um, is very tiring and you cannot do a lot. And it didn't require a lot of scientific uh, research. <laughs> People could figure out by themselves, you know, they were training every day. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it was no. tiring for, for those athletes. So, um, You've got in rowing, you've got great studies about it in the 80s that um, you should only devote that middle part of the training. I call it middle part because it's mid-intensity, high like that, because um, we do it uh, in very specific. It's very specific to competition because that, that's the kind of... Uh, uh, Biomarkers you can record at the end of a competition. It should only devote later in the training, very progressive building up to, to this, and not much often on the training because um, it's very tiring. You don't improve a lot. It makes you crash. Um, and it's better to be very progressive with that and focusing on high intensity, low intensity, and progressively in a concurrent way towards this. You find a lot of sprint training programs like this from the 60s, 70s in East Germany, concurrent training, low intensity, high intensity, and the conjunctions, you know, you, you build up and you arrive late, later on with, the, with that middle part of um, uh, mid-intensity, high, uh, uh, high lactate. Whether you call it lactate or not doesn't really matter. You change. You call it high acidosis or uh, whatever. But um, we call it like we call it a fuel now for the muscles. Uh, yes. <laughs> shouldn't. Yes, it's fuel for the muscles. But well, try to do it a lot. You will see that <laughs> your athlete will crash down. Why? Because athletes been been there. I mean. All the training in the 60s were, was geared toward this, doing as much as possible, but um, it led to um, <laughs> a good thing about it, it, it improved a lot the, the medical science because those athletes ended up doing massage almost every day. You've got mm -hmm. blogs of East Germans doing 250 massage a year. <laughs> trying to recover from this high volume. Yeah. Then when they understood that this volume is, is too much and even doping is not helping anymore to try to, to uh, make the body recover, all those hydrotherapy, massage, cryotherapy and so on was actually falling the athletes apart and they couldn't do more than one in Olympia. They're starting to be more reasonable with volume and play with the intensity. Um, and find the optimal intensity, but also the in optimal volume. And when they started having Olympic champion, became becoming Olympic champion out of these high volumes, and uh, they started to change, you know, uh, the paradigms and theories and build up new things. 
they were quite agile uh, with their methods already because uh, they were pragmatic. They were very dogmatic, but also pragmatic. At the end of the day, what matters was winning medals. And it was very important, more, much more than it's, it is now for our cultures. In some countries, it was very national proud, pride. It was, uh, and as I said, all the scientists were working on this and coaches were like very scared because they need medals. If not, they were fired uh, and athletes as well. So, uh, that's my long answer for, for the pol yeah. polarization of training, but uh, it, it has a relevant historical reason for that. Um, now, uh, you, you see that, that there is a tense tension between um, the hype around um, polarization training and the hype regarding lactite is a fuel for muscles. That's interesting. Let's let's uh, let's see how it, it goes. And uh, but I can tell you, it's it's been explored for 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 in the past century, and uh, it's very exciting research. And we will know more probably about how how you should do it when and, and uh, but it leads us to the periodization of training question, and it's been explored because. Uh, Everything was quantified back then, at least in, in, in Eastern countries from the early 50s. And um, all this has a history, all this uh, had an evolution, all this was confronted with dogmas, uh, but also with the need to get results. I just, I just can't wait till I can say dogmatic and pragmatic in French when I'm learning. Same thing. Is it? Okay. Probably <laughs> has it a, uh, Greek roots. Okay. Dogmatic and pragmatic. Easy. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll impress my French teacher on Friday when I, when I say it and I'm just like, it's the same. It's the same. We all know it's the same. <laughs> But PJ, I'm going to um, I'm going to do a little roundup. But thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate. It. And as all, like seriously, as I have so much respect for people that come on here when English is not their first language. So I honestly really do appreciate your time. But if anyone's got any questions, because I found this really really interesting, because history is one of my passions as well. So to see that someone has taken history and sport and put them together. And, and been so interested in it is, is superb. But if anyone's got any questions, where can people find you? Is Twitter the best place? We've spoken about it a little bit on there. Is Twitter the best place to find you? Anywhere. Uh, Twitter, I, I try to be around uh, and to interact with people in any way. Everybody will find my email or somehow, or in the track, it's even better. <laughs> do, do you know your Twitter handle, PJ? So it, PJ Vazel. At PJ yeah. Excellent. Yeah. V A Z E L. V A Z E L. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I enjoy a lot uh, um, listening to podcasts. Obviously, the next one uh, I won't bother hearing it, but uh, <laughs> it's the next ones. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much, PJ. Really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Next time, next time we speak, we'll speak in French. All right. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, PJ.
Bye bye. À bientôt. Salut. Thanks for tuning in to episode 298 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with PJ. So firstly, must say I'm absolutely honoured to get PJ on and a massive respect for him for coming on and not speaking in his in his first language. Like it's, it's super, I have so much respect for these guys. Um, so really appreciate PJ giving up his time and being comfortable enough to come on and speak English, of course, in this episode. Also, big thanks to today's sponsors. Really appreciate their support. Could not happen without these guys. If you have enjoyed the podcast, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week.